Let us pray. Oh God, may your presence among us transfigure us and change our hearts so that our lives may be renewed. Amen. Uh, Jenna, I'm going to move this so I won't knock it over. Don't forget it, okay? All righty. I got to admit, this story today that we read every year defines, defies any attempt, at least any attempt I have, to try to make sense of it. It's far beyond, really, the realm of imagination with this radical change of Jesus' appearance, followed by the appearance of Moses and Elijah, who um, had been gone a long time. And then, of course, the voice from heaven. However, I would like to suggest something this morning, and I think Luke backs it up, is that this time of transfiguration on the mountain is not a whole lot different than our time together in worship on the eighth day. Let's look at the context, the stuff going around this story before we looked at it. Right before this story, we read the story of, of when uh, Jesus said, um, who do people say that I am? And they said something, and then Pete, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And then Jesus follows that confession here in Luke by sharing for the very first time what's going to happen to him. It is going to face a lot of suffering, be rejected by the religious leaders, and then be killed, and then be raised on the third day. Then he go on to say that if any of you want to follow me, you must deny yourselves and take up a cross and follow me. Certainly that leaves the disciples scratching their heads about what in the world does that mean. Then they go up on the mountain. Peter, James, and John go on the mountain with Jesus. But then after, they come back down from the mountain, right after this story, they come back down the mountain, and right away Jesus returns to his ministry. Right away there's a man who's begging Jesus to heal his son, his only son, who, who has been inflicted with the demon, with the devil, with Satan. The man says that he asked the disciples to heal his son, but they couldn't do it. Well, eventually Jesus will heal this young boy, but first he said this. And I guess he's saying this to the disciples since they couldn't heal this boy. You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Again, just as in the story before they go up the mountain, the disciples are thrown into a loop about not understanding what in the world Jesus is asking of them or how in the world to do it. And then not to get too far away from our story today, right after that story is the second time that Jesus will predict what's happened to him. He says this time in Luke that he will be betrayed into human hands. And the disciples, it says, Luke says that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying and they were too afraid to ask him. Now point out what's going on around our story before it and after it to remind ourselves that these first followers of Jesus find it very hard to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Hard to understand and hard to do what Jesus would want them to do. And I know for me, and maybe for you as well, I can identify with that confusion, that frustration 
that these disciples must have in following Jesus. Because I know I get confused and I get frustrated in my attempt to follow Jesus. For example, let's just consider a couple of the verses that we read in the last couple weeks. Last week, Jesus said this, I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Last week I even titled my sermon, A Hard Pill to Swallow. How do we do that, that Jesus says? And then the week before that, it, didn't, it wasn't any easier because Jesus throws upside down what we consider is good and blessed and what is woeful and awful in life when Jesus says this, Blessed are you who are poor, but woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who are hungry now, but woe to you who are full now. Not only is this stuff hard to understand, it's also how God intends for life to be, life right now, and it's not always easy to follow. I know it's not for me. Perhaps, maybe not for you either. And of course, as we all know, life can be hard anyway. Illness, cancer, grieving the loss of loved ones, regrets about the past, worries about the future. Life can be hard in and of itself, and following in the way of Jesus can only add to that. But then there are times up on the mountain. Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on the mountain. And the mountain in Scripture is always a symbol of God's presence. On that time on the mountain, things change, to say the least. Jesus' appearance has changed. Moses and Elijah appear in glory, as Luke calls it. Peter recognizes that something is going on and he says, Hey Jesus, let me build a house for, for you and Elijah and, and Moses and we'll just stay up here. But the text says that Peter didn't know what he was saying. And actually what happens next just interrupts what he's trying to say because he's trying to figure it out. But he knows he's in a wonderful place. Even as he's talking, here comes a cloud, again another symbol of the divine the cloud overshadows Jesus and Peter and James and John and it terrifies them. The voice from heaven comes, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. And then, after that, everything goes away. The cloud's gone, Moses and Elijah are gone, Jesus doesn't look like a light bright anymore. And the story closes with Luke saying that they kept silent. And in those days, they didn't tell anybody of the things they'd seen. Now, granted, we're not going to have anybody's face change and their appearance change like whatever it was that happened on the mountain. And certainly nothing like Moses and Elijah appearing However, I think when we gather for worship, there's a lot of similarities between what we do and what happened on that mountain. 
Luke isn't the only one who tells this story. Matthew and Mark tell it too. Matthew and Mark, though, they say that six days later, and then the story, but if you were following along when Lisa read it, eight days later. Now, this phrase, eight days, may not mean much to us, but it meant a lot to the early church. You see, of course, we know the creation story, that God created the heavens and the earth and on six days. And on the seventh day, God rested. That's the story. And that seventh day, which is the day of Sabbath, which means stop, is which day? Nope. It's Saturday. Okay? Now, in the early church, they began to worship Jesus who was killed on a Friday and was raised on a Sunday. Sunday. And the early church began to move their worship from Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday. And they called that day the eighth day. So the church worshiped the risen Christ on the eighth day. I think Luke intentionally does that. It goes on to say some other things that only Luke says. Um, in Matthew and Mark, it says that uh, Jesus takes those three disciples up on the mountain, but only Luke says that they go up on the mountain to pray. Now, Matthew and Mark also talk about Moses and Elijah being up there, but they don't talk about the conversation that, that Moses and Elijah had with Jesus, and that, that conversation was about Jesus' departure. That word departure is the word exodus. In other words, that was going to take place in Jerusalem. In other words, they were talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Only Luke gives us those hints. How might this story be a reference to worship? I think Luke wants to remind us that worship is a time of transformation. When we worship, we are being transformed. Things may not look like it must have looked on that mountain with Jesus, but some of the same things happen. You see, the aim in worship is for us to give up our own selves and open ourselves up to let God speak and to listen for how God might speak. How God might want to work God's ways in our lives. How God might work to transform our hearts and our minds. We leave behind for a time the struggles, the pains, the heartaches of life. We enter into this time where we are silent and we listen for God. And then we head back out and things might look the same as they did before we got in here. But in a sense we are being transformed while we are here on the eighth day, we open ourselves up to God's wonder and God's joy and God's power. I want to offer up a couple of examples, a few examples of how I've seen this lately. Last week, I read Martin Luther King's sermon on loving your enemies. My son Carter, who's not here, commented after church, Dad, man, that sure was long. Thanks, son. Um, I'd read that sermon before, and I read it again several times before worship last Sunday, so I would be familiar with it. But then when I was reading it last Sunday, I read this part that it said that Dr. King says, Why should we love our enemies? Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, 
adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And as I read those words that day, something, just knowing Dr. King and his journey, I can't explain it. Last week, Judy Catlett prayed our opening prayer. And I'll be honest, I don't remember all of it. I don't remember much of it. And, and what I remember may not be exactly what she said, but it's how I remember it. Because in that, in her prayer, she talked about something about all the conflict and bitterness and bickering that goes on in the world around us. And in my mind, I thought when she said that, amen. And I hope that we as the church can live together in a different way, even though, of course, our United Methodist friends found out this week that that's not possible. But here's the thing that I think makes our lives transformed more than anything when we gather. And that's when we get around this table. Because we cannot explain the significance of this table. Every time the church has tried to say this is what it means is in this and not anything else, we fall short. Because we cannot explain the grace, the invitation, the love, the welcome. We can't explain that because, because God's imagination is greater than anything we can ever imagine. So when we gather around this table, we are transformed in our hearts and our minds. One more example. It's about a hymn that we sing. Something about this hymn was first shared with me by Jenna Buckner. It was a few weeks ago, right? And I kept the little piece of paper so I wouldn't forget. And then it was referenced to me a couple weeks ago when I was at um, 1 Corinthians Baptist Church downtown for the KSU Gospel Ensemble. And please, somebody... Work your ways at K-State and get that group over here. The hymn is, It Is Well With My Soul. This hymn was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago. His real estate holdings in the 1860s made him a very rich man. He and his wife Anna were devout churchgoers. They had five children, four daughters, and one son. However, in 1871, tragedy struck the family. First, the only son died of pneumonia. Later that year, a great fire stuck, struck Chicago, and it destroyed much of Spafford's um, real estate holdings. It crippled him financially. A couple years later, an economic downturn hit Chicago, further hurting his finances. Because of the tragedy that hit like one right after the other, Spafford decided that um, his family was going to go on a vacation and not just away from Chicago, but away from America. He arranged for the family to go on a ship to Europe. Right before it was time to go on the trip, though, Spafford was called. He had to stay home to take care of some business dealings. So he sent his family, and he was going to take a ship later on to go join them so they could get away. Four days after his wife and four daughters got on the ship, though. It crashed into another ship. 226 of the 313 people on board were killed, including all four 
of the daughters. Anna survived. She sent a telegram to her husband as soon as she could, and it said this, Saved alone, what shall I do? Shortly afterward, Horatio Spafford boarded a ship to Europe, and while he was riding on that ship to Europe, he wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. Here's the first verse. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. At this KSU gospel ensemble, short before the ensemble sang, it is well, and man, they rocked it. Mario Radford, who directs the ensemble at K-State, he got up and talked about how there are times in our lives when life is not going well. People have let you down. Events have happened that bother you. Things that lie ahead of you keep you anxious and worried. And Mr. Radford talked about this a bit. And then he shared that story of Horatio Spafford. And then he said this. You know, all of this can be going on around me. All of this can be going on around us. But I know this. No matter what is going on around us, it is well with my soul. Worship reminds us that no matter what goes on in life, it is well with my soul because we know that God goes with us. He talked about that, the ensemble sang, and when, he, when we left there that night after that worship service, I was kind of like the disciples. I didn't have the words to share what I experienced that night in worship on the eighth day. This morning we're going to watch Allison Krauss sing the first verse of it is, did you get that, Jolene? Oh, goody. It is well with my soul to kind of prep us. And then we're going to stand and sing the first verse and then one other verse, the fourth verse of that same verse, of that same hymn. sing like 
Alison Krauss perhaps, but let's give it a shot. Let us stand and sing, It Is Well With My Soul. <laughs> 